Hello and welcome to Uncapped Web3 Talks, your podcast about everything Web3, NFTs, the metaverse, DAOs, digital art, and much more. My name is Norman Wiese, I'm the founder of Uncapped Collective, and on this show, I'm having in-depth conversations with interesting personalities that have a true impact on the Web3 space. I talk to founders, collectors, artists, investors, and other thought leaders. In this episode, I'm joined by a very good friend of mine, Onur Akpolat, who is the lead ecosystem builder at Cosmos. Onur has been focused on building Web3 ecosystems for over six years now, and he is one of the most knowledgeable people that I know in the space. We chatted about his path into Web3, took a deep dive into Cosmos, and talked about his experiences and best practices as an ecosystem growth expert. We also chatted about his view on NFTs and his outlook for the next 12 to 18 months in these stormy Web3 times. Without further ado, let's jump right in. Hello, Onua. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm good, Norman. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, I'm actually very happy and excited that that I brought you on here. Um, we should let the listeners know that we're we're good friends. We we've known each other for many years. We've worked together in several companies. We've built a company together for 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 several years, and. Now, finally, we're sort of reunited in the Web3 space. So uh, it's a special episode for me, and it's, it's really cool to have you on here. Um, why don't we start with a quick introduction on yourself? Give us a little bit of background about Unwar and how you got into the Web3 space, and then we kick this off. Yeah, I uh, would, would love to. It's a pleasure. So I've been in the Web3 space for six and a half years now. Uh, as you said, you know, we've built a company together. It was a Web2 company um, focusing on an offering, which was social media as a service. And there was some super interesting tech behind that. But after that came to an end, I actually started looking into mining. And with a few friends, I've built a small GPU mining operation. At the time, we were mining Ethereum and Zcash. And after that, I was so hooked by, I was actually intimidated by the complexity and, you know, not understanding how things work in the space that I started diving into deepers and ended up working on a project called Radical. Radical was attempting to um, kind of truly decentralize code collaboration. While Git is a decentralized protocol, you know, GitHub owns a lot of the social primitives such as comments and PRs and you know they're a US company so there's some kind of compliance that they need to um, there's some regulation that they need to comply with so there's some small issues there but afterwards you know in the last two and a half years transitioned to the Cosmos and Interchain ecosystem where I've created the Interchain Builders program and that's something like a white combinator for Cosmos so we're helping teams uh, bootstrap them all the way from idea and cooperation to go to market and mainnet very cool before we dive a little more deeper uh, a little deeper into the cosmos ecosystem and ecosystem building in general i think that's a very interesting new capabilities capability that companies and organizations out there in the web3 space uh, have nowadays uh, doubling down on radical for a second uh, you mentioned that radical 
was or is attempting to build a more decentralized GitHub. Could you explain why that matters? If you if you think about the creation of software today, and especially in the open source world, you can see it as the backbone, you know, the digital infrastructure of our modern world. There are libraries in the world, open source libraries, that are used by multi-billion dollar corporations, yet the library itself is free and open source. It's a public good in the true sense. But again, like there is exploitative forces that extract a lot of value here, and that value isn't isn't shared back. That's the first problem, and that is called open source sustainability or incentive alignment, right? The second problem is a, is a bit more technical. So Git is a distributed protocol, which means if we collaborate on a piece of code, you can host it, I can host it, we can make sure it's somehow in sync, that would be a federated model. But that's very inconvenient, which is why you know a central main repository makes sense. So if there's a central main, the two of us can work against that main repository and we will always be in sync. So that's kind of great. And that's what GitHub does. But the problem with GitHub is it's a bottleneck. It's a centralizing force, which means um, if GitHub doesn't like you or your country, they can just ban you from your code. And while this seem like this sounds like a joke, it's actually true. Like there's been use there's been users from regions of the world, such as Iran, such as Crimea and Ukraine, that were banned from their code. And the reason for that is GitHub was acquired by Microsoft. You know, Microsoft is a U.S. corporation. They need to comply with U.S. law. So for them, it's not even a you know consideration. They just they just do what they're told to do from the government, basically from the authorities, to not have to deal with uh, pressure. And for the users, it's unfortunate, right? And that's that's the second problem, which is kind of centralization or like having a permissioned environment. Um, and that's what decentralization can solve. And it's a hard problem to solve because you still need the centralized logical main in a decentralized architecture, which is exactly the problem that crypto solves. And then the third thing is, you know, Git is distributed, but Git doesn't know, doesn't have the notion of comments or PRs or the project management around it. That is, these are all things that GitHub gives you. And GitHub kind of centralizes all these primitives within their platform. So even if you want to move your code from GitHub to another service, you're pretty much losing all your project management, PRs, comments, and so on. And I think in summary, these are kind of the three problems that um, Radical is attempting to solve. And we don't want to go super deep on Radical today. It's not our focus topic. However, maybe one follow-up follow question there. So I think it's it's one incredibly interesting example that probably the mainstream out there doesn't really know about when talking about decentralization, right? We we talk a lot about currencies and financial markets and all that kind of stuff and banking systems. But here we see, okay, GitHub and open source software is really the backbone of the internet today and the web and the products and many of the products that we are using. And here you have Radical attempting to decentralize that for the, for the given reasons, right? Would you say, just maybe last question on Radical, would you say the USP or the value proposition of a decentralized code collaboration product is 
sufficient and interesting to the mainstream of the developers out, out there from your experience at relevant at radical or is it more of a niche topic for projects and engineers that are in markets that you that you that you've just outlined like Iran Crimea whatever yeah. how, how, how do you how do you think about that is it you know is that is that ethos really demanded out there or is it more of a yeah more of a more of a thing for engineers that actually experience suppression or or stuff like that i think it's very niche today and i think it's very hard to compete with github on a holistic level because github is a has a great product and most engineers love github so github made engineering better in general um so i think you're right to the extent that it's a niche product, but it really depends what you want to do. If, if you are a centralized company and you're extracting value out of a market with a proprietary product, maybe GitHub is fine. But if you are Bitcoin and you are worth billions of dollars and you're a public good, then GitHub is not fine. And the, the, the Bitcoin engineers and, and core developers know that, and they also want to move away from it. Right now they have a process around it. So I think, you know, It's, it's mainly a problem that is relevant for public goods and the Web3 space in general. I think incumbents or Web2 probably will not have this issue. Okay. Okay. I see. Awesome. Let's move on with the ecosystem that you mentioned in your intro as well, which is the Cosmos network, which I think is super interesting. Um, it's, I think, one of the I don't know, top 20, top 30 blockchain projects out there for sure. Could you introduce uh, the listeners to the Cosmos Network? What is it all about? Yeah, I, th I think the main differentiator of Cosmos is Cosmos is not just one blockchain or one zone. It's multiple sovereign app chains that are all connected with each other. And we call the interchain basically the internet of blockchains. And I want to maybe, before diving into technical details, I want to give you an analogy. So if you think about, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum as cities, those are all cities with different characteristics. And in Ethereum, for example, one thing we've recently seen with the emergence of DeFi, which is the equivalent of, let's say, you know, a central business district, that a lot of like financial applications settled in the central business district and rents got really high. That means that regular citizens or users that lived there before are pushed out to the suburbs because rents are cheaper there. And this is exactly what you're seeing with Layer 2s and Polygon and Arbitrum and Optimism and so on. And Would you say that is a bad thing? Is that a bad thing that they're being pushed to, to Layer 2s? For them, yes. For Ethereum itself, no, I think it's just... It's more like a neutral observation. But for the for the users, it's a bad experience because it gets more expensive and it's slow. Um, so we have all these like multiple chains. But the problem here is basically now you have fragmentation and you have bridges. So because the system was not inherently designed, let's say, multi-chain first or cross-chain first, you have all these workarounds to bridge assets, um, You, you don't have like synchronous composability anymore. I'm not going to go into details, sorry. And it's just like a weird user experience to having to use like two or three different uh, layers and then bridging back and forth. 
Now, when you start a chain in Cosmos, by default, you're connected to over 50 chains. Because the intra-blockchain communication protocol, in short IBC, was kind of inherently baked into the SDK. And these are already the, the two most critical parts of the ecosystem. So it's basically, in total, it's three things. It's Tendermint, which is the underlying consensus or replication engine, which is a proof-of-stake system. And then it's the Cosmos SDK, which gives you building blocks to build blockchains. So you don't need to reinvent the wheel with staking, governance, um, slashing, payment over and over again. It's standard features that the SDK gives you. And it's IBC, which is connecting everything with each, with each other. If you look at the ecosystem today, there's quite a few big chains. There's the Cosmos Hub, which was the first chain. There's Osmosis, which is the kind of, you know, business district of Cosmos with like financial applications. And there's like things like Juno, which is more like a permissionless open network where anyone can deploy a contract. There's many more here. But basically, the main idea is sovereign app chains that are connected with each other is Cosmos and Interchain. And cross-chain communication is easier and more seamless versus monolithic blockchains that live in isolation, which is why they, there needs to be like heavier bridges to facilitate communication. And heavier bridges have higher risk assumptions or trust assumptions, which is why, unfortunately, a lot of bridges were hacked in the past and so on and so forth. So I think from here we can go into a bunch of different directions. Yeah, yeah. But I was I was going I was going to follow up on that topic of bridges and how how you you basically i think outlined two let's say disadvantages i guess um for heavy bridges one is the user experience it's just not as seamless and the second is security would you mind walking us through this topic a little more and why i'm specifically asking about this and <clears throat> maybe um putting both of our perspectives here into perspective you are really very deep on the infrastructure level. You really know the deep tech stuff inside out. Me, I'm more coming from the consumer side of things, from the application interface layer. And one, I think, trend over the last few weeks and months that I've seen on that layer is that Polygon gets massive traction when it comes to onboarding brands, existing players, from the Web2 world. So I'm I'm particularly interested in that aspect of okay, what are maybe disadvantages or hiccups when you when you have that Ethereum layer two polygon kind of setup compared to what you guys build a fully connected uh, internet of blockchain. So my question is could you could you just compare these two, maybe from a user perspective, user experience perspective? And also from a security perspective, uh, that would be great. Mm -hmm. So from a user perspective, I think Polygon, Polygon is fine because once you're within the Polygon ecosystem, and right now it's a rich ecosystem, um, you have cheap transactions, right? You have, you have cheap rent. It is fast. It works. So that's fine. The problem when it comes to security is basically um so if you if you think about the assets that secure a chain you know bitcoin is the most secure it's secured by the most assets and and a hash rate i think ethereum is second and polygon is somewhere i don't know in the top 10 but like after so if you have your eth on ethereum main chain it's fairly secure 
once you bridge it to Polygon, there's a bunch of assumptions that you're adding to those assets. Who's controlling the keys to that, you know, bridge or, or custodian? Uh, what happens if Poly Polygon got ha gets hacked? Uh, if Ethereum gets hacked or like exploited, let's say, anything is lost anyway, like even on Polygon. But that's so unlikely, um, given the economic security, that whenever you add another layer, it gets more likely. And for example, when you bridge ETH from Ethereum to Polygon, in a nutshell, it works like this. You lock it up on, on ETH in a smart contract, and then you mint it on Polygon. So there's a couple of things that can happen here. One, what if the mint contract on Polygon gets compromised, and now instead of like minting one, you can mint more? So then it's not pegged anymore. And vice versa, what if the smart contract on the Ethereum side gets drained, and the ETH that are supposed to be there aren't anymore? Then again, your ETH on, on Polygon depeg and are not worth what they're supposed to be anymore. So there's all these type of risks. Um, and this is, I think, the, the main security problem with bridging assets. You basically buy into the security assumptions of each bridge. And how is this different? How is this working differently within Cosmos? Where you don't yeah. so need I, bridges. So IBC is you can simply think of it as a stateless relayer, it simply relays transactions. So IBC and the relayers don't need to be secure. They just need to relay verifiable transactions. And then the security comes from the main chains. So instead of trusting a bridge relayer set, which is obviously significantly smaller than Ethereum mainnet, you can think of it as when you send something to Ethereum, the Ethereum stake and validators are verifying that transaction and that's you know in the billions um, and this is how ibc works so the validator sets of each chain with a two-thirds majority have to attest the validity of every relay transactions even if you know a hacker or a malicious actor relays that transaction it doesn't matter as long as it's valid it will be verified by the underlying chains and this is kind of a fundamental difference in the architecture and to make it more tangible, could you outline or walk us through two or three projects slash blockchain blockchains that are in the Cosmos network? Could you name a few so people you know who want to go deeper can look them up? Uh, what are the top two, three projects that come to mind that make a little more tangible what is happening within the Cosmos network today? So there's a site called mapofzones.com. It's one of my favorite sites, not because it has like a nice 3D uh, animation in it, but also give you like it gives you like a rough overview of um, the volume across all 50 plus chains and the Cosmos ecosystem right now. And I think you know I already mentioned the Cosmos Hub. The Cosmos Hub is kind of one of the most reputable and biggest chains. It was the first Cosmos SDK chain. It doesn't really have applications, but it also doesn't want to. It wants to stay lean and credibly neutral while providing high security. Then there's Osmosis. Osmosis is mainly um, a DEX, but in the future, they're also planning more financial DeFi applications. I mean, think of it as like De DeFi city of, um, of the cosmos. Anything with regards to swapping, lending, borrowing, money markets, uh, yield futures, 
um, you know, these type of products in the future, I think it makes sense for them to live in osmosis or other financial cities. Like in the real world, I think there will be multiple financial cities in the future, but for now, that's the main one. Then there's Juno. Juno is kind of a decentralized, permissionless zone, which enables Cosmosm applications. And Cosmosm and Cosmos are basically contract-based dApps, similar to Solidity dApps on Ethereum that you can just deploy without asking anyone. You can do the same in Juno. Going back to Osmosis, for example, if you want to deploy a Cosmosm application on Osmosis, you can't just do that. It needs to go through governance, and the citizen of the Osmosis city need to vote whether they want your new application in that city, yes or no. So, you know, these are all the different type of flavors that exists um, in the cosmos, whether it's permissioned or not permissioned, whether it's like financial focus or just a security focus. At the end of the day, what they all have in common is their sovereign zones, which means they control their own validator set in the sense that, you know, the validators that decide to participate in the network and govern the network make up the rules of that zone or city. So sovereignty, I think, is one of the kind of most important factors for Cosmos. Can you explain Cosmos is not is not a typical company as we know it from the Web2 world, right? I mean, both of us have a relatively strong background in Web2. We've, we've been around for a while. Uh, so what I always like to do and what helps me understand thing, things is, you know, to just compare these two these two eras, basically, right? So I know that Cosmos is structured very different from a classical startup or a company as we, you know, as we know it from from the past. Could you explain us the structure of the of the Cosmos network or the Cosmos ex um, uh, organization? So there's a lot of history to unpack here, but to keep it short, it's really a set of different organizations that maintain the ecosystem. At its core, there's a nonprofit foundation in Switzerland, which is the Interchain Foundation. It was created with the mission of maintaining the public goods infrastructure of Cosmos, which means mainly funding it. Um, then there are a couple entities. You know, Historically, there was a company called All In Bits, short AIB, which was also known as Ignite. So it has had a couple different names. Um, that was kind of the core operating entity, but that broke apart around 2018. And a few new organizations that formed after that, just to name three, are Interchain GmbH, Informal, Strange Love, um, and now Binary Builders. Um, so these are kind of all organizations that now maintain the ecosystem. In total, I think there's as many organizations as chains. So there's probably around... 50 to 80 organizations that one way or the other contribute and maintain uh, the ecosystem within Cosmos. You know, that can be writing codes, managing tenderment of the SDK. It can be providing guidance with a grants or a builder's program. That can be writing documentation. That can be doing marketing and community work. But like, there's a ton of companies that really like maintain this ecosystem. So that's also the strength of Cosmos. You know, like it's a really community-based decentralized project without this like centralizing force, which is good and bad because it's also quite inefficient. I see. And now you've mentioned an important term 
which is uh, yeah, which we hear hear a lot. Ecosystem, right? And ecosystem building, ecosystem fostering, which for me appears to be an incredibly important discipline in building out your project or Web three projects, oftentimes in general. But this is really a term that we don't really, that most of people entering from the Web2 world, having built products and businesses before, that term wasn't really around. I think it, it seems to be a capability and a discipline that is really baked into Web3. Therefore, I would love you to explain what ecosystem means to you. If you could define the term for the listeners, I think you gave you gave a great outline on you know this rich ecosystem that you guys already have and it seems like you and your team you're a little bit of the glue uh, and the catalyst of that whole ecosystem so i would love you to explain what ecosystem ecosystem building as a new sort of discipline and building something in web3 means to you ecosystem is the holistic view of your protocol and your network. And I think the closest, so if you want to draw an analogy or comparison, the closest in the traditional world was would be pr privileged partnerships or biz dev. But here's why it's different. First of all, it's different because you are building in the open. So it's not just outbound. There inherently can be a lot of inbound just because you're open and potentially permissionless, a lot of like actors can just decide to participate in your ecosystem without you even having to do anything. Um, the second thing is, again, coming back to this idea of holistic, it's much broader than, you know, just a financial partner or a marketing partner. It has so many, it can take so many different directions. So obviously those two still exist, financial and marketing partners, but then you have your engineers for your core, You have engineers that build maybe decentralized applications in your ecosystems. So you need to educate them and onboard them. Maybe you need to like financially incentivize them or provide support. Then you have your community, which consists of investors, users, um, developers. So maybe, you know, investors, they want to have a compelling token design uh, where the mechanism design is such that It appreciates in value over the long term because there's a sound mechanism behind that. And that's also part of the ecosystem. Then you have kind of technical integrations such as wallets, exchanges, custodians, you know, like in order for larger institutional players to um, be able to get exposure to your network, you need custody support. You need, you know, exchange support. Otherwise, these bigger players won't touch it, which might be a good thing as we've seen in the past. But in general, you know, this is also part of the ecosystem. And maybe last, you know, there's also other chains and bridges, for example. So because this is in this new paradigm, everything is supposed to be interoperable and composable. You also have other layers and chains as part of your ecosystem. And one funny kind of mental, like one of the ideas mentally that I have is, um, Every every layer one is another blockchain's layer two, if that makes sense. Um, because like for Ethereum, Bitcoin is layer two. For Bitcoin, from Bitcoin's perspective, Ethereum is layer two. Like everything that happens off chain is a layer two, right? Um, so from that perspective, like everything to some extent will work with each other. So that's part of the ecosystem. Um, I mean, I can expand, but you know, it's just a holistic view on your network with all the participants and stakeholders. 
Yeah, you, you went super deep there already. So uh, let's try to maybe unpack some of these key aspects that you just mentioned. Maybe one, if you were to, within Cosmos or any other, let's say, comparable uh, Web3 project, what are the, for you, when you would set up an ecosystem team? So let's, you know, let's try to identify a little bit of a blueprint, right? So if you set up an ecosystem builders team or a structure what are the the key activities and the key roles maybe to make it you know make it tangible what are the key roles that you would try to hire what are the key capabilities that you need on your team what types of people do you bring into your team yeah that's a very good question um so i think you need people that have kind of a good understanding of your product and technology, as well as all the different stakeholders. So you can think of it as like user research also. Like in the beginning, you know, if you have a good product understanding, you need to start with a um, decent amount of user research, understanding all the different stakeholders. Um, once you have that, what are the what are the what are the key stakeholders for Cosmos again? Now that you mentioned them, I th I think it's not even a Cosmos specific question. It's like for for every blockchain in general, you know. There are wallets, for example. You know, wallets are the gate for users to interact with your with your uh, chain. Then there's validators or miners that secure your network. Then there's the users, investors that participate in your network and do something. You know, for them it has to have utility. Then there's there's politicians, let's say, who participate in governance and you know make proposals and and try to kind of um, change your system and your, your, your rule set. In order for wallets and other integrations to work. You have light clients, you know, you need light client support so people can build wallets and other decentralized applications. Because, you know, blockchains are inherently inefficient, you need data providers such as the graph or others that allow you to build rich applications with like rich queries so you can actually build applications that are rich for a user and not slow. All, all these type of things are kind of part of blockchain's ecosystem. Um, and that's not Cosmos specific. I would say that's, you know, applicable for any blockchain. Okay, and you were going to walk us through the types of people, the key activities and types of roles that you need. I was interrupting you, so maybe you could just continue with that. So I think in general, like understanding and mapping out all the different categories of ecosystem participants that I just mentioned and beyond is something you need to have a good understanding of. And if you don't have that today, you need to have kind of strong user research, pr product research skills, I would say, to be able to just like map out that ecosystem. So I would say, you know, technical and, and product people are probably a good fit here because whenever you design a product, you have to understand uh, the user base, the segments, and perform user research to understand your needs. And the needs will most likely look very, very different. For example, an, an investor has a different need than a validator, has a different need than a developer, and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, other than that, you know, it's really about um, it's really about understanding, mapping out the ecosystem, and then finding connections to it. So participating and engaging with all these channels. These are mostly asynchronous forums or Twitter or maybe like Telegram or, or Discord groups. There's also conferences, but you know, in general, you just need people who engage in those uh, venues where the conversation happens and that participate in that conversation. So I think, you know, 
a phone is not enough. You really need kind of to change your mental model in the sense that you need to go there where the conversation happens and it's it's it happens in the open it's not a privileged partnership or just a number that you call it's more you have to show in the open why why this makes sense otherwise um yeah the community will just ignore it or not even not not appreciate it mm -hmm. and how would you <coughs> define if that team that we've just assembled is successful are there any KPIs, metrics that you as an ecosystem builder would look at? Is that too much of a marketing view on that whole topic? Or do you do you think KPIs, metrics do matter and you can actually, as an ecosystem builder, measure the success and the, let's say the, yeah, the, the, the level of how much uh, an ecosystem is thriving through KPIs and numbers? I would say it depends on the stage of the project. The further down the road and more mature the project, the better you can have this kind of performance view. For example, you could measure um, retention of certain wallet addresses um, and you can break down retention on a bunch of different things. You can break it down based on activities, right? So you can, ha you can have it based on governance, like... Proposal of a proposal, week over week, month over month, how active are certain wallets in governance? Or you can have it based on economic activity, such as swapping on a DEX or participating in a lending borrowing protocol. Um, you know, week over week, one month over month, how active are these addresses um, on financial applications? So that's one way to look at it. I think especially in the beginning, it's very hands-on, qualitative. You just need to go out there and, and win the ground type of thing. Um, so it probably would be more on on the side of acquiring developers and and builders, right? To to get this going, I assume, right? Yes, yeah. I th I think you know the two the two components that are really important are applications, which only comes with developers, and applications will bring activity, volume, and TVL. And once you have TVL, users will come arbitrageurs will come, like everyone else will come. So it all starts with developers, depths, uh, then, you know, some sort of like utility. I mean, it's, it doesn't have to be TVL. It can be something what else. Is, what, is, what is TVL and how is it calculated? TVL is total value locked. And it's usually calculated, for example, if, if you are a decentralized exchange, a DEX, then it's usually the amount of assets that are locked in liquidity pools. So, for example, if you have 100 million in liquidity pools today, that's not bad because when users perform a swap, there's relatively low slippage. If you would only have 100K in TVL and I want to do maybe a 5,000 USD worth trade, that would already create a lot of slippage. So, the user experience is not nice. Um, but in order for TVL to come, Again, you need developers who build compelling financial applications and you need those applications to be sufficiently audited because if they're not audited, no one's willing to put in 100 million into them. So this is another mm -hmm. thing, like security and audits are also part of the ecosystem. You need players who provide that service and so on. And this rich, let's say rich, very rich, very broad, very complex new activity of ecosystem building. Do you think that's a, 
that's solely something and the playbooks in here and the blueprints that you're outlining, do you feel like this is solely something for developer-focused blockchain projects? Or do you think that that thinking, that mindset, that playbook can be applied to a wider range, maybe even in the Web2 uh, world? Do you, how, how, how do you feel about that? Is that that's something that is, is going to remain a niche discipline, right, in, in absolute terms speaking, for de developer-focused projects and platforms and protocols? Or do you feel like this might have spillover effects, the learnings, the people moving more into, I don't know, in, even back into Web2 environments or even um, more on the application layer and stuff like that? How, how, do, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think I think I think the latter. So I've already came to peace with this idea that instead of web two versus web three, it will just be whoever builds the superior primitive will win. So if web three gives us superior payment and membership primitives, they will just be adopted by web two or incumbents instead of instead of, you know, a Web 2 service to completely rebuild in Web 3 and on, on the blockchain, which I don't think makes sense. I think, you know, integrating certain primitives for certain things that give you utility makes sense. So in that spirit, I would say ecosystem is for everyone. And the thing that changed my mind the most was kind of this community first approach. So instead of kind of focusing on, you know, maybe maybe a few customers or your investors building your product in your kind of more or less bubble. I think having this up in the open and have your community incentive aligned, which yes, is mainly represented with the token and 99% of these are probably not very useful and don't have utility. But the concept in general is quite useful. You know, you put an idea out there, you gather publicly a group of supporters and champions. And one effect that is pretty crazy is I mean, imagine the business we've built like in 2014, 15. Imagine having 2,000 supporters for that business that just randomly tweet about you on Twitter and support you and make introductions for you and try to improve the product. And just because, you know, you give them a little bit of the pie and they have skin in the game. It's usually the skin in the game effect, right? That was just fascinating to me. And I know there's like a bunch of regulatory hurdles here and there's also like some complications, but putting that aside for now... I think that is really interesting, right? Like building community first in the open, incentive aligning like core participants of your ecosystem. I think these are all things I would bring to a normal business that is not related to Web3 at all as well. So in that sense, I think, yes, you know, these ways of building ecosystems will come also to classical players. That's very interesting, actually. And you dropped a few terms that I would like to double down on that I actually had in mind to get your opinion on anyway. Um, so I, I mentioned before, you are more very deeply on the infrastructure side of things. You understand the protocol level a lot and you are not necessarily, I assume, uh, super deep in NFTs, in 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 what what types of metaverse strategies Nike and Adidas are building right now. I mean, I, I know that you're interested in that, but maybe not, not really in your day-to-day -day business. However, I know that you have some very strong opinions 
on that. And I think the sort of, for me, the very interesting glue between these two layers, infrastructure and application, um, are stuff like community-focused building, incentive alignments through tokens, which is the skill in the game effect. Uh, could you could you share your thoughts on that a little more? Because I, I actually that's actually what I've seen when I started looking into the whole NFT space more deeply. I really feel like there are not only protocols or developer tools. Yeah, uh, our our company was sort of a developer tool back in the days, being built through through incentive alignments and tokens and, and using the skin the game effect. But now, pretty much since last year, there are completely new consumer brands being built. There are media companies being built. There are There is IP for, I don't know, uh, at least that's what people are, are striving for. There's IP for toys and games and TV shows being built in the open with a community focus. So I would I would love to 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 talk about this a little bit more. Would you share that observation that through NFTs all these mechanics and this yeah these these token powered models are tapping into the into the consumer world? No. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, I I mean yeah, I think I think I think even though it was a leading question, I do agree that um that is the case and kind of coming maybe back a little bit to this idea of the primitives that web3 is creating you know if you if you start very simple an nft is just a primitive you can use it for whatever you want for example the first nft that i worked with was um, a domain name so i wanted to secure a unique domain name within the protocol it's, it's something similar to ENS, right? Like you can have like Norman.eth, for example. That's unique. Only you can have it. You can have it for a certain time frame. Then you need to renew it. That's a primitive. And, you know, whenever you have the need for a central name service to determine what is the source of truth, and even Radical needs that, right? Even Radical would need to determine who is the owner of this main repository. So there's a ton of use cases here. I think what we've seen over the last two years is the emergence of art coming on chain. So essentially you have creators who utilize that primitive to leverage a commercial and emotional relationship with their consumers. In a nutshell, that's what art is, right? So that is beyond, even, even before NFTs, that was the case. But now we kind of have use cases where that happens digitally, you can attest it on a chain, it's formally verifiable, you cannot fake it. I mean, think think about like, you know, just copy pasting an, an, an MP3 file for music. With NFTs, that doesn't work. You have like a unique version on your address on the blockchain, and only you can access that. So that's a great primitive. I love that primitive. And in general, you know, I think NFTs are super interesting. I, like you said, I kind of couldn't keep up with everything that happened, especially with, you know, with the sheer volume of the drops and mints and everything. And, you know, obviously, you know, some of these are opportunistic. I think it's not hard to see, but you have to look beyond that and you have to be kind of smart enough to not be dragged and not FOMO into, you know, every mint that looks interesting. But if, if you pick what's interesting to you, and the last example I'm going to, I'm going to say Citizen DAO. I'm a Citizen DAO member. I have an NFT 
that it tests that I'm a citizen of the citizen DAO. It's, an, it's a city on the blockchain that actually works on buying physical land and builds a city and fund it you know, through means of this DAO. So that's why what I use NFT for. It's great. has nothing to do with um, an image. But even, even if there would be an image of an artist that I really like, I would, I would love to participate in that, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just a primitive, I think, you know, after the hype settles, you just have to look at what sticks and what remains and, you know, what interesting things people keep building. Yeah, and speaking of of primitive, the the definition that I really liked for this primitive the other day when I listened to another podcast was um, NFTs are a transportation carrier financial transaction and ownership technology for intangible assets. Um, so I, I really liked that generic Uh, the, that generic definition and also the term intangible assets, right? Because a lot of the stuff that you buy into when acquiring an NFT is not tangible, right? It's belonging, it's identity, it's, you know, being part of a community, it's, you know, an emotional value being attached to that artist or to that creator. Um, I don't know, There, there's, there's ways now to make moments and I don't know, um, replays of amazing sports events and stuff like that, sort of unique and um, and, and tradable, uh, and and I, I really liked I really liked that that comp that uh, definition. Yeah, there's another thought experiment. I think by now you probably heard it before, but I'm still gonna say it. So imagine you know you go to Paris to the Louvre, but you're a bit late and there's only 10 minutes you have. Um, you want to see the Mona Lisa. But basically, um, the guy tells you, hey, like, look, uh, unfortunately, the original Mona Lisa burned. It's on the left wing of the Louvre. However, we have a perfect replica on the right wing of the Louvre. Um, if you want, you can, you can, you can see the replica. It's, it's a perfect replica, pixel by pixel. But you, you have to choose for only one because we are closing in 10 minutes. Which one would you pick? Okay, um, so say the option again. Options again. I have the option to go to the replica, or I can see the ashes. Burned the yeah. ashes of the burned original Louvre. Um, hmm, I would probably go for the ashes. I think that's that's much more uh, historically valuable and significant. Exactly, and I think ninety nine percent would pick that because if it's just about the pixels, you can watch it online. You can go to like any place that has printed a great version of that. However, you want to be kind of close. You want to have proximity. You want to be close to the physical thing um, that, you know, Picasso touched with his brush or whatever. And you're actually part of, you know, a little bit like, like you said, like um, history. And maybe you are one of the first ones who sees the ashes, which is kind of a new version of that piece of art. Because the story that the artist created still remains. It just took on a different form. And if you think about that, you know, then you come to understand that it's not about the pixels of a certain, let's say, bored ape or crypto punk, right? Which are like two extreme examples for like um, pieces of art that maybe people don't understand. However, you're part of history that when these things came up, You didn't just like stand on the sidelines and watch. You participated. You played around with it. Maybe you made money. Maybe you lost money. Maybe you're still holding them. Maybe you maybe you build a collection and you want to, you want to be like a digital collector in the future. Imagine like in 100 years from now, how much like the first of these things will be worth, right? It's like 
I mean, it's going to be insane. It's like the Atlantis of, of crypto in a way. <laughs> so in, in that sense, like, I think, yes, speculation, bubble, a lot of like opportunists and a lot of like, um, a lot of like crap projects also and a lot of, a lot of like copycats. But that's the same in art, right? Like you can go to like a random market and have like a ton of replica cars of or original design um, items or original art pieces. So if you go for the originals, I think, and you find value in them, you know, I think it will always be valuable no matter what like other people say. Yeah, and I think another thing to add here, um, you mentioned the hype and the, yeah, the 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 rug pulls or the money grabs and and stuff like that that happened a lot last year or even this year. I think even even these two examples, Board Ape, Yacht Club, Yacht Club, and uh, and CryptoPunks, even within and they're actually under the same roof, right? They're under this. They belong to the same org organization now. Even just these two are very different. Like you really need to understand NFTs as a as a base layer technology, so to speak, right? So even just just what I mean by that. So I think CryptoPunks. I think there's no roadmap. The project is not really continued in a meaningful way. It just has significant cultural relevance, and people love the project without any external factors, no matter what. That's why the prices remain so high. That's why people still trade them. That's why people will keep them. And, and I think what you just, they are more on the ashes side of things for me. Um, so I think they're, they're just, they're just an art project for the culture. Whereas Bored Apes, I mean, they, there's, you know, they want to build a video game essentially or a metaverse, whatever. There's roadmaps, there's tokens involved and stuff like that. So it's very different, you know, just looking into these two and even there, you, you know, they're, they're belong to the same organization and there's so many differences. If you actually look, look beyond the, this, you know, nowadays sort of burnt term NFTs, right? They're, they're, they're just so different. And for me, really, NFTs are, I don't know, when people say, yeah, I, I don't believe in NFTs. I don't, I don't like them. They're a scam, whatever. It's, it's essentially to me, like people are saying, I don't believe in databases. Like it's that's so you can build, I don't know, you can build a porn website, a dating website, a healthcare portal, an e-commerce shop, Amazon, whatever, all are based on databases, right? And you know, the 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 user experience layer layer, so to speak, and the brand that you build around it is, is fun is you know can be fundamentally different, but they can all rely on the same database technology. Um and and this is I think what hopefully people will uh understand in the future or the mainstream will understand or probably not understand the the nft term is just going to vanish it's actually vanishing already people don't really use it uh, that much anymore and when you look at big brands so i don't know that's that's for me another yeah another uh, another sort of uh, mental model I, I think you can also say for example when people use like whatsapp or instagram or whatever favorite social network today they don't think about like oh i don't like tcp ip or i don't like http you know, like these are just protocols underneath that are abstracted. And I think once NFTs are fully abstracted, you will not talk about NFTs anymore. In the same way how you should not talk about AI when you have a startup, right? Like you shouldn't say, I have an AI startup. doesn't make any sense. You should, you should say, I utilize AI to create XYZ or solve, you know, ABC. Uh, and then your secret source might be access to AI and your expertise and so on. But... Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, 20 years ago, people pitched the idea of I'm building, uh, like you said, I'm building a database company or I'm building a database. 
but then okay like what's the what's the use case here is it is it time series is it um, archivals of, of large data is it um, memory cached super fast access to data like whatever it is um, there has to be kind of an edge and yeah I, I agree with you I think for, for MTS it would be the same one thought experiment you know I was really like thinking the other day is if you think like 400 years ago whenever banks were invented I really wonder like how to transition from tangible physical assets such as um, precious metals like silver or gold to paper money was because usually you know I know the rough history which is roughly um, you know you, you place your gold somewhere you get a piece of paper that attests that you have physical gold in that storage but then someone came you know someone had the idea oh wow like now I can actually take that piece of paper that attests that I have gold backed in that house um, and pay with it or like you know yeah, just pay with it. And then like people started trading these papers. But you know, in the early days, those houses were robbed. Then your certain piece of paper wasn't worth anything anymore, but the other piece of paper maybe was worth because it was not robbed. That process took like 400 years or, or, or whatever. And if, if you think about that in perspective, I think it's completely normal to have all these like hacks and exploits and rug pulls and like 5 million different versions of tokens. But at the end of the day, again, like, the thing that will stick in maybe like 10, 15, 20 years from now, like for me, there's no doubt that it will be powered by blockchain um, to, to, to one way or the other. And this is kind of how I look at it. So in the grand scheme of things, I think, you know, technology is interesting. The thing we're building is interesting. But we are going through a weird phase where um, there, some consolidation needs to happen over the next years. Yeah, and maybe let's talk about this for a couple of more minutes before we wrap it up. Uh, I mean, I'm trying not to touch on too many day-to-day -day news type of uh, things here, but I think uh, we're we're in this, um, as you said, downturn bear market right now. Uh, some some stuff happened recently. How do you, having been in the in the space for you said more than six years now, you've been through some cy cycles. Uh, uh, you 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 told me before that. It makes you a little numb at some point and and doesn't affect you that much anymore. How do you how do you view the the current cycle that we're in? Is it different from the ones in the past? Is it is it similar? How, how do you how do you see that uh, that macro environment right now? It's a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit different to the extent that um, it's more extreme and more severe than the other downturns we've seen because I think institutional players already entered. This was one of the assumptions in the last bear market and it happened. But now institutional players also exit because some of them got burnt. And that I think um, is a little bit unexpected. So things go faster. I think they will go up faster again however i think you know we we are in this phase for another like maybe 12 to 18 months or so uh the, the numbing i think is very accurate because like once you detach yourself from the purely like financial upside which uh, to be fair like it does something to you especially the first time it happens but once you look beyond that it really doesn't matter so much like i for example i really like genuinely don't have a portfolio tracker or anything like that anymore because this create, created like a lot of psychological anxiety and stress for me. And 
nothing changes in your life, right? Like you don't really act on every information unless you're a day trader, which I think only 1% are good at. The remaining 99% lose on that. So for me, like when I deleted that and I detached from that completely, like things got much like things settled in a much more like state of peace, uh, focused on building, focused on educating and so on. So that's that's the numbing part. But in general, I think, you know, it's a recession. We're going to go f- through it for another at least one, maybe one and a half years before um, we see kind of a light at the end of the tunnel, in my opinion. All right. Okay, Onur, that was so insightful. I mean, uh, look at this range that we've covered. Started with decentralizing software development and, uh, and open source software, touching on uh, Cosmos, going deep on ecosystem building, and now um, NFTs and the macro environment. Um, yeah, it's just amazing the, the the range of knowledge that you have in the space. Um, it's really, really cool to have you on here. I think we're definitely going to repeat that. Um, and uh, thank you so much for being here. And uh, yeah, it was a great conversation. Thanks, man. Appreciate it, Norman. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And yeah, look forward for, to our next conversation. Take care, Onur. Bye.